Mercy is good. Justice is good. And yet there isn't a judge in this world who can give us both at once. We have these desires in us that seem intention, don't they? C.S. Lewis once wrote, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I think that's true with these desires, these, these desires that are intention with justice and mercy. We desire truly a good judge, a judge that is good through and through, a judge that somehow can bring together these two realities that we know do belong together, a judge that is both just and merciful. We, we want that. We long for that. We desire that. And though we can't find it anywhere in this world, the good news this morning is that the judge we long for has come to us. Open your Bibles to Matthew 23. We're going to continue our series through Matthew following the fulfillment. And this morning our passage is Matthew 23, verses 13 through verse 39. The title of the message is The Good Judge. Listen to God's word this morning. We're going to read this whole passage, Matthew 23, verses 13 through 39. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monument of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, 
some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would help us as we work through this text. Your words to us, Lord, your living and active word. And Father, we pray that you would let your word cut like a knife into our hearts and show us what's there. But we also pray, Lord, that you would show us your son, show us the glory of Jesus. Let us know how great our sin is, and let us know how great a deliverance we have in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name, amen. This morning's passage reveals to us that Jesus Christ is the good judge that we all truly long for. Jesus Christ is the good judge that we all truly long for. He's not a vindictive judge, and he's not a lenient judge. He's not an unfeeling judge, and he's not an unrighteous judge. He's not a judge that sometimes is just and sometimes is merciful. No, he's the only judge in the universe who is altogether good, and therefore he's a judge that we can both look to for justice, and he's a judge that we can run to for mercy. We're going to see this this morning by looking first at Jesus' righteous judgments, then second at Jesus' compassionate lament, and third at Jesus' saving departure. His righteous judgments, his compassionate lament, and his saving departure. In all these things, we see that Jesus is a good judge. Now, the first section of the passage is the longest, Jesus' righteous judgments. We're going to spend most of our time here today. Starting in verse 13, running all the way through verse 36, we see that Jesus is the good judge that we long for through his righteous judgments. In these verses, just as the Old Testament prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel did in their day, Jesus, no less than seven times, says, Woe to you. Woe to you. Seven times Jesus announces God's righteous judgment. Seven times Jesus makes a declaration, you are under the wrath of God. This is a passage of righteous judgments made by the man God has appointed to be the judge of the whole world, Jesus Christ. Now, who is Jesus talking to in these judgments? Woe to who? Pagan worshipers? Pagan idol worshippers, murderers, adulterers, prostitutes, thieves, abusers, who are the ones under the wrath of God? The amazing thing about this passage is that Jesus here isn't addressing any of these typical sinners. He's addressing the scribes and Pharisees. These were Israel's teachers of God's word. These were the shepherds of God's people. These were the ones who knew the most scripture. These are the ones who kept the law most diligently, at least from the outside. And amazingly, they are the ones who come under Jesus' public judgments. Here's why. 
because Jesus could see the truth that these spiritual leaders were actually lost sinners who were just wearing a mask. Six times he calls them hypocrites, play actors. Five times he calls them blind guides or blind fools or blind men. The people of Israel thought they were following trustworthy, mature spiritual leaders, but in actuality, they're following spiritually blind sinners who are wearing a mask of holiness. And Jesus sees this. And they're the ones that come under his sternest public judgments. You know, one of the great travesties in our own criminal justice system today is that someone who can be convicted of a crime may be the person who did not commit the crime. We read stories like that, right? The person who didn't commit the crime is convicted, but the person who did commit the crime is found innocent and remains free. This happens in our world because even the best judges in this world are finite. We are limited. We can only see what we can see, but not so with Jesus. His knowledge is not limited in the least. He knows not only every action, but he knows every thought and every intention of the heart. He sees behind every mask that we might put on to see who we truly are. And therefore, he alone is uniquely capable to pronounce perfectly righteous judgments. That's what's going on with the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, what is it that they've done exactly? As he sees through the mask to the heart, what is it that they've done? To put it in judicial terms, Jesus charges them on seven counts in this passage. Seven woes for seven sins. And as we walk through these woes this morning, we must examine ourselves, church. If the teachers of Israel could be found guilty before Jesus' righteous judgments, then it's entirely possible that we could be found guilty also. And so let's seek to humbly listen to the words of Christ this morning and consider, am I guilty of any of these things? The series of seven woes comes to us really in three pairs with a final woe at the end. We'll see this as we go. There's really three sets of woes and then a final woe that rounds off the list. The first two woes are related both to the Pharisees and scribes dealings with those who are lost. Look at verses 13 through 15 again. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. When he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Both of these are about their dealings with those who are lost. Jesus charges the scribes and the Pharisees first with shutting people out of the kingdom. Shutting people out of the kingdom. We see this in the way that they treated sinners. We've seen this in Matthew. They viewed prostitutes and tax collectors and others as really beyond the reach of God's kingdom. They showed them no mercy. They offered them no help. They offered no grace. They essentially told them, you are too sinful for the kingdom. But notice what Jesus says to them. Not only do they shut them out, he says, you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. It's like someone who is at a ticket booth and they're turning people away because they don't have enough money. And then they turn to try to go in themselves and they find they don't have enough money. They shut sinners out of the kingdom without realizing that they're going to be shut out of the kingdom too for their own sin. That's the first charge against them. You are keeping people out of the kingdom because you, you view them as beyond the reach of God's mercy. That's the first woe. The second woe, though, shows that they didn't treat everyone like this. They didn't shut everyone out. Jesus charges them next with making false converts. We know about Jesus and the disciples, but he wasn't the only one with the disciples. The Pharisees, the scribes, that they sought disciples too. They went out and made disciples. 
And while they shut out the worst sinners, while they viewed some as being beyond the realm of the kingdom, they, they viewed others as, as good prospects. And so they went out and they proselytized. The problem was that they were recruiting them to a false way of salvation. They were recruiting them not to faithful Judaism that trusted in the Lord and in his promises. They were converting them to their own Pharisaism. They were converting them to their own hypocritical ways. They were making converts that, that were walking a path to hell. And for this, Jesus says, the wrath of God would come upon them and their converts. Church, let's examine ourselves. We will face God's judgment, too, if we live toward the lost like the scribes and Pharisees did. I'm just ask you a few questions. Do you treat certain types of people as being beyond the reach of God's kingdom because of their sins? Do you exclude people as those that God might save because of their sins? Do you shut sinners out of the kingdom by not sharing the gospel with them? And when you do share the gospel, is it the true and saving gospel? Is your message Jesus Christ? Is your message nothing less and nothing more than the pure gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? We are called to preach that gospel to all people, shutting no one out and not leading anyone to a false gospel that gives them a false hope leading to hell. This morning Jesus says, Woe to you if you keep others out of the kingdom. Let's preach the gospel to all people and make sure it's the true gospel that we are giving them. The next two woes are both related to their keeping of God's law, or it might be better to say their failure to keep God's law. First, Jesus charges them with manipulating the law to justify disobedience to it. Look at verses 16 through 22. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater the gold of the temple that has made the gold sacred. Here's what's going on in these verses. Just like we might place our hand on a Bible when we take an oath to tell the truth in court, the Israelites would swear by sacred and holy things connected to the Lord and the temple. But the religious leaders had created a complex system whereby there were certain things that made oaths binding and certain things that weren't, certain ways that you said your oath that would, that would make it either binding or non-binding, a, a complicated system that no one could really keep up with but themselves. And the effect of this was that they could justify unfaithfulness because they hadn't technically sworn by something that made it binding. It was essentially like crossing your fingers behind your back while you say something, you know? It, 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 it was a way for them to feel like they were justified in, in breaking their oaths. They could lie, and they could claim to have obeyed. And Jesus sees right through this system, and he tears it down, and he insists that every oath is binding before the true God of heaven. Whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells on it. Whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. His point is this, we don't stand or fall before God based on technicalities. We don't stand or fall before God based on whether we technically kept the law. We, we stand or fall before God based on whether or not we lived our lives in light of his pervasive presence and infinite worth. If we lived before the face of God. And the scribes and Pharisees had failed to do that. They made their acceptance based on technical law-keeping in their own interpretation, not based on what God actually wanted from them. The second charge relates to their keeping of the law in verses 23 to 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, 
but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Here Jesus introduces a principle that is crucial for us to grasp. Listen, we must keep all of God's law, especially the weightier matters. We must keep all of God's law, especially the weightier matters. So the religious leaders were diligent law keepers when it came to the lesser matters. Jesus points to one of the most lesser matters that we could probably think of, and that is their tithing of various herbs, which is addressed in the scripture. You know, just imagine if this was happening in our day, they'd go to the store and they'd go to the aisle that has all the little jars of herbs, right? I'm always intimidated by that wall of herbs. And they'd go home and, and they'd get their little tablespoon out and they would get a tenth out of every single one of them and, and measure it just right and they'd bring that to the offering plate and whatever that looks like, I don't know. But you know what they wouldn't do? They didn't seek justice for the innocent. They didn't extend mercy to sinners. They didn't live faithfully to the Lord. They, they, they were meticulous to keep these little laws and they felt so righteous in doing that, but they neglected love for God and love for neighbor. And Jesus uses this ridiculous picture to, to show what they're doing. Have you ever just seen a little bug in your drink and you try to get it out? Well, he's, he's, he says, listen, you got, the, you got the gnat, but you missed the camel. You got a little bug out, but there's a whole camel you just swallowed. His point is, they're missing the main thing. Love for God, love for neighbor. The greatest commandments. Church will face God's judgment too if we treat God's law like they did. Let me just ask, do you ever seek to justify your disobedience to God by somehow manipulating in your mind the clear meaning of God's word? So well, I, I know I'm supposed to do this thing God has said, but I, I couldn't because of this passage over here tells us this, and, and, you, and you find a way to self-justify before the Lord when you know that you've sinned. Or, or maybe you give yourself diligently to lesser obediences, but you neglect to truly love God and love others as you ought. Maybe you give regularly, diligently, zealously, but you are a terrible leader of your home. You don't love your family the way you should. And you don't try to. You don't repent of that. Jesus says today, Woe to you if you claim to keep God's law, but you fail to do what it actually says. If you fail to pay attention to what really matters, the spirit of the law. So he's declared woe to their relations with the lost, woe to them and how they keep the law. And then the fifth and sixth woes are about neglecting the heart. He says, Woe to you, you've neglected the heart. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. This is a picture that comes from the world of ceremonial cleanness, which preoccupied these religious leaders. They were all about keeping the laws related to cleanness. And first Jesus tells them, well, you cleaned the outside of the cup, but you forgot to clean the inside. Now, let me tell you, back when I was in college, I had a stash of mugs, not as big as our stash of mugs now, but I had a little stash, and, uh, and until I was out of mugs, I would just let my mugs sit on the shelf until like, I had to clean all of them. And sometimes that took a little bit of time, and, and weeks, 
you know, months. And uh, tell you what, after you let coffee sit there for a few weeks, it's not just coffee in there anymore. It gets a little gross. So imagine you came to uh, have coffee with me, and I got one of those mugs for you, and I, I got a scrub brush, a soap, and I cleaned the outside really, really well. And then I poured some coffee into the inside without even touching everything else that was there. Would you drink from that cup? Is that cup clean? Of course not. And here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus says that God looks on their cleanness like you would look on that coffee cup. It's not clean at all. There's, there's no cleanness in that thing. There's the, they forgot to clean the inside. And of course, this is a metaphor for the heart. The scribes and Pharisees obeyed all the laws about ceremonial cleanness, but the laws were always meant to point to this deeper reality that God cares about internal purity, true worship, internal cleanness. God looks on the heart. The second image Jesus gives is of a whitewashed tomb. He says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, we need to understand that in Judaism, to come into contact with a tomb would have made you ceremonially unclean because of the dead bodies on the inside. But the problem was, unlike today where most of our graveyards are very clearly marked and we have gravestones, the problem was that if you weren't familiar with the area, these tombs could be inconspicuous and you might be you know, leaning against a rock and not realize like this is, a, this is a grave, this is a tomb, and there's dead people inside, and you'd be unclean. And so what they would do is they'd whitewash these tombs, especially during a festival or something like that, so people would know, stay away from over there. So that's the image Jesus is drawing off of, that, that, that these tombs, they, imagine they, they would look somewhat beautiful, all these whitewashed uh, rocks and, and boulders around the landscape, but what, what were those? They were tombs. They were unclean places. They were filled with dead people's bones. And Jesus says, that's you. You are whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but it doesn't change the fact that you are unclean on the inside. You look righteous on the outside, but you are wicked on the inside. He says to the ones who are most concerned with keeping the law that you are lawless. You're lawless on the inside. Church, we need to examine ourselves. Do you believe that your external deeds make you clean before God? Do you believe that the things you do make you acceptable before God? We will face God's judgment if we think that church membership, evangelism, Bible reading, prayer, listening to sermons, giving, serving, or any other external religious activity will make us acceptable to God. Our hearts are unclean. Our hearts are wicked. And if we don't turn to God in true repentance from the heart, then Jesus will say to us, Woe to you, whitewashed tombs. All this leads to the seventh woe. Verses 29 through 36. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, 
Some of whom you will kill and crucify. Some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, the first martyr of the Old Testament, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the last martyr of the Old Testament, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So Israel's tragic history was that whenever God sent a prophet to them, they rejected them, and they often killed them. Now, by the time the New Testament is written, of course, it was accepted by the Jews that these men were prophets, and, and they sought to honor them, and they built uh, monuments to them, and, and, and they recognized these were God's spokesmen, and, and they were holy men of God. The scribes and Pharisees insisted that if they had lived when their forefathers had lived, they would never have killed the prophets. And Jesus knows their hearts, and he says, you are just like your fathers. They murdered God's messengers, and so will you. I'm going to send you new prophets. I'm going to send you messengers. I'm going to send you apostles. I'm going to send you people with the good news of the gospel. They're going to call you to repent. And when they do that, your guilt will be confirmed because you're going to reject them, flog them, persecute them, and show who you really are. And when that happens, my righteous judgments will be vindicated. This is the seventh woe. It's the final woe. It's the one woe that stands alone. It's the woe that completes all the rest. And here's why. Because this final charge, this final indictment against them is that they reject the only thing that can save them from all the other judgments. They reject the one thing that can save them from all the righteous judgments that Jesus has just pronounced. They reject God's call to repentance. Church, God doesn't just announce his righteous judgments. He also announces the good news of salvation from those judgments through repentance and faith in him. But if someone rejects that, if someone rejects that call, someone rejects that message that, that you can repent and you can be pardoned from these judgments, then as Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? If you reject the one thing that can save you from those judgments, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? So as you've heard the righteous judgments of Jesus this morning, hear also the merciful call of Jesus to repentance. If you don't, if you reject that message, it only confirms that his judgments are truly righteous. We spend most of our time here today, Jesus' righteous judgments show us that he's a good judge. He's a judge who sees the heart, he sees wickedness, he sees behind the mask, and he pronounces righteous judgment on sin and evil. But there's a little more we need to see this morning to Jesus' judgment than just his justice. And this leads us to the second way that we see that Jesus is a good judge, his compassionate lament. Jesus' compassionate lament. Now, there's no getting around the fact that his declarations in these woes are severe. I mean, to call someone a hypocrite, a blind fool, a brood of vipers, not generally kind things to say, but it'd be easy to get the wrong idea and think that Jesus is being vindictive or mean-spirited in all of this. That's not what's going on at all. Jarring, yes, but merciful, and verse 37 shows us this because he, uh, after pronouncing these righteous judgments, he shows his heart in all of this. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, 
How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? After declaring all these woes coming against his people, Jesus laments the woes that they face. He says, woe to you, and then, and then he reveals that his heart is broken over the fact that they face these judgments. He uses the picture of a mother hen gathering her brood under her wings. It's a picture of protection from danger, a picture of shelter for these chicks from a predator. And Jesus says to the people of Jerusalem, how often I've wanted to gather you in that way. No, don't miss the implication of his words. First, Jesus is not just another Israelite. Jesus is Israel's God. Jesus is Israel's Savior King who has come to protect them and shelter them and save them. That's what he came to do. How often would I have done that? And don't miss the meaning of the metaphor. For three years now, for three years, from the very beginning of his ministry, he's been calling the people, repent of your sins. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. He's been coming to them over and over saying, come under my wings and be safe from the judgment that is coming for your sins. And yet, look at what he says at the end of verse 37, and you were not willing. You were not willing. In his commentary on this passage, J.C. Ryle wrote an excerpt that I think is worth serious reflection. Listen to what J.C. Ryle wrote 150 years ago. The grand secret of man's ruin, the grand secret of man's ruin is his want of will. A will to repent and believe no man can give himself. But a will to reject Christ and have his own way every man possesses by nature. And if not saved at last, that will prove to have been his destruction. Let us understand that the ruin of those who are lost is not because Christ was not willing to save them, nor yet because they wanted to be saved but could not, but because they would not come to Christ. Let the ground we take up always be that of this passage we are considering. Christ would gather men, but they will not be gathered. Christ would save men, but they will not be saved. Man's salvation, if saved, is holy of God, and man's ruin, if lost, is holy of himself. Man's salvation, if saved, is holy of God, and man's ruin, if lost, is holy of himself. How often would I have gathered you, and you were not willing Israel was not willing to repent and find refuge in Jesus, their Savior King. And after three years of calling them to repentance, Jesus openly laments their refusal. Church, if you want to know the heart of Christ in his righteous judgments, this is it. This is the heart of Christ in those he judges. Jesus is not vindictive in his judgments. He is compassionate. Jesus does not love to declare, woe to you. He longs to declare, you are forgiven. His is the same heart as the heart of God his Father, who said in Ezekiel 18, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Jesus is a good judge who will declare right judgments, but he does not delight in the suffering of those who receive those judgments. He's a good judge who declares righteous judgments, and yet his heart is filled with pity and compassion toward those who must bear those judgments. This is the heart of Christ in his judgment. And in this, we could say that Jesus is really the best of what we could hope for in a human judge. A good human judge can make righteous judgments, and a good human judge can feel compassion for those he sentences. Jesus is both of those things in the ultimate way, but there is something a good human judge cannot do. 
He can do nothing to change the situation of the guilty. A good human judge can pronounce righteous judgment. A good human judge can feel compassion for those that come under that judgment, but a human judge cannot change the situation of the guilty. Jesus can. And this leads to the final way in our passage we see that Jesus is a truly good judge. His saving departure. His saving departure. Church, we're about to read the final words of Jesus' public ministry. He'll speak again, but this is the last time that he's before Israel, speaking to Israel in his public ministry. And before we read these words, I want you to think back to his triumphal entry. As he entered Jerusalem, just a few days before, he was acclaimed with shouts of, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When he arrived in the city, he went to the temple where he cleansed it, he healed the sick, he received even more praise. But since that moment, what have we seen? We've seen Israel's leaders reject him again and again and again. And this leads to this statement in verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Son of God came to the temple and was rejected. And now he says, See, your house is left to you desolate. Because Israel rejected him, the house of God is now just your house. It's your house now. And it's a house that has been abandoned. The glory of God once filled the temple, but now the temple is going to be relegated to the status of a desolate house. Its destruction within their own generation would confirm his words. And when Jesus left the temple, God's glory was leaving the temple. And then Jesus tells them, you will not see me again. Think about that, church. Think about those words. You will not see me again. After three years of seeing Jesus, seeing him teach with authority, seeing him heal the sick, seeing him uh, cast out demons, seeing him feed the crowd, seeing him bless the children, Jesus says, no more. My ministry is over. You won't see me anymore after this. When you first read that, we wonder what's going on here. Has Jesus failed? Has he, has he tried and tried to call them to repentance and finally realized they're never going to repent and now he's, now he's giving up? He's going to go back to his father and say, I tried, Father. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't repent. Time for judgment. That's not what's happening. Jesus is not departing in failure. Jesus is departing because he is still on a mission to save these people. Because the truth is that these crowds would see him again in just a few days. Just not like they'd ever seen him before. They were going to see him again, but this time he'd be stripped and he'd be scourged. They were going to see him again, and he'd be wearing a crown of thorns. They'd see him again, and when they did, they'd all shout out together, Crucify him! Crucify him! When they would see him again, he would be sentenced to death and he would be hung on a tree between two common criminals. They were going to see him again. Like that. What, why is that? What's happening? It's this because Jesus departed. Jesus departed to bear these judgments in their place. Jesus departed to bear the judgments that he had just declared and just lamented. He departed to receive the full weight of God's wrath in the place of those who deserve God's wrath. Jesus departed, and when he did, it was like the judge stepping down from the judge's seat and stepping into the seat of the guilty. 
to make a way for the guilty to be forgiven. And this is how we see that Jesus is a good judge like no other judge. He is a judge who can justly save us from the judgment we deserve because in his great love and compassion, he took that judgment in our place. He departed to make a way. As we close, look at the final words in verse 39. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now again, in light of the fact that they did see him again, what does this mean? Listen, these final words of Jesus' public ministry, they're an invitation to truly see him. They're an invitation to a glorious and saving seeing that's given to those who are saved from judgment. The people of Israel might have seen Jesus during his public ministry, but they didn't see Jesus the way that we were all made to see Jesus. They didn't see Jesus in the splendor of his glory and his grace. But Jesus says here that this is not your last opportunity. He's saying, I'm not leaving and going to send judgment immediately. He's saying, I'm leaving to make a way. And to any who hear my words today, who hear and accept his righteous judgments, who hear and believe in his compassionate love, who hear and trust in his saving sacrifice, to any who hear these things and then declare from the heart, Jesus is the Savior, King I need. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to save me from my sins. To any who believe and repent, Jesus says, you will see me. You'll see me. You'll see me in all my glory. You'll see me in all my splendor. You'll see me in all my grace. You'll see me the way that you were made to see me. But not with an empty praise like the crowds have, with a true cry of the heart, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to save me from the sins that I deserve. Church, Jesus is the only good judge who we can run to and not away from in our sins. If we're guilty, we're not running to a judge, except Jesus. We can run to him in our sins because he has made a way. We can accept his judgments and we can hear his love and we can see his sacrifice and we can run to him and he will reveal his glory to us as we do. So repent, receive him, and rejoice as you behold him in his glory.